Once upon a time, there was a little boy called Antonius Mockbell who was born in the Middle East. Pretty much it would be agreed he's the most infamous prisoner in Victoria, if not Australia. And amazingly, the pizza parlour must have done very well because he started to turn over quite a bit of money. I'm Andrew Rule. He's Anthony Dowsley. This is a bonus episode about the stabbing of Tony Mockbell in Barwon Prison. Anthony Dowsley, as we record this podcast, Tony Mockbell is fighting for his life in hospital after being stabbed at Barwon Prison on Monday. This is uh, a dramatic event. Um, It's transfixed attention around the country. What do you think led to that stabbing, and is it as sinister as some people suggest? Is it some sort of conspiracy or something else? What do you think? Well, at the outset, it just seems as simple as we speak as a crew within prison walls, yep. which is uh, would have probably more power than they would have outside of prison walls, yep. having a beef with Mockbell. Yep. And this would be Pacific Islander crew in this case? The Pacific Islander crew. Standover men. Yep, who yep. have become somewhat of a force inside and they've taken an issue with him over him standing up for a, a young teenage bloke, a 19-year-old that they were standing over. That may have simmered, that may not have simmered. There's a newspaper article on Sunday on Sunday, in which they're saying that you know, Mock Bell has been able to intervene. intervene and use his power to stop anything happening to the teenager. There may be many more factors behind it than that, but as of right now, that's what we know. And that's the bit, whatever the factors are, that's the bit that's probably put the match to the fuse. That's probably the flashpoint moment. Yeah. At some point, they were considering before this incident putting him into protection or into, a, into an isolation situation. Um, that didn't happen. Why, why was this? Uh, because of the tensions that were um, raised um, on Sunday. Okay. They have, for some reason, thought it was under control. It wasn't under control. Uh, about 15 minutes before lockdown, these incidents occurred at 3.45pm. He's been rushed to the uh, by air ambulance. So two two attackers. Two attackers. There's two victims. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, they would have used uh, prison-made shiv, which is a, a knife of some description. They've stabbed him in the neck and chest. It's obviously got some serious areas because he's been in a critical condition since, and he will be have, have had surgery last night, um, and he will be in the intensive unit care unit of War Melbourne Hospital right now. He will. Of course, Ruler, there's a history of high-profile prisoners being either bashed, stabbed, and sometimes killed in prison. Can you take us through a couple of them? Well, of course, uh, Chopper Reed. Uh, the first time I ever saw him, he was giving evidence at the Brunswick Magistrates Court where all the H Division prisoners would have to give evidence when they were charged with things. And he had been stabbed, filleted like a fish in the tummy, rather like, um, probably rather like Tony Mockbell. And that had purportedly been done by Greg Bluey Brazel. Right. Although there is uh, other suggestions that um, Chopper's alleged friend... Jimmy Lofton. Jimmy Lofton was involved. And um, it was a very interesting scenario because we saw every other H Division prisoner, this is 1979, giving evidence, uh, or not giving evidence, most of them, about what had happened or not happened. And it was fascinating. There were police with shotguns standing on the roof of the court 
Brunswick Court, and the biggest coppers I've ever seen in my life standing just inside the door of the court, heavily armed. It was most fascinating. So that was one high-profile case, and which, of course, has been seen in the Chopper movie. Yes. Versions of it. And you mentioned Brazel. Blue, Bluey Brazel. Blue, evil Brazel. Work. What happened to him? Son of a policeman, as it turns out. Uh, he ended up um, in jail for many, many years, and he was accused and convicted of murders. And he was bashed himself. He was bashed himself. By Matthew Johnson. By Matthew Johnson. Who Matthew oh. Johnson also went on to bash... Carl Williams, Carl Williams. So this is how they are connected. It's sort of like the heavyweight title fights. You know, the, the old champion gives way to the new champion and so on and so on. And Russell Street Bomber, Craig Minogue, plays a part of this because he uh, bashed... As, he bashed... Uh, he, well, he actually killed and Alex killed. Tasmarcus. Yes. He put uh, the gym weights in a pillow slip and hit Mr. Tasmarcus very hard on the head. Yes. Which uh, he became deceased, and which was a good result. Because Alex Desmarcus was a very evil man who's responsible for many deaths out in the world, including rapping a professional runner called, I think, Bruce. I'll leave his name out. He was a professional runner. He was not a crook. And he somehow crossed Tasmarcus in dealing for a vintage car, buying and selling a vintage car. Tasmarcus wrapped him in chicken wire and dropped him in the bay. Oh, dear. Which was very bad manners. Mm. And... Uh, Tasmarcus, actually in jail, had covered Barry Robert Quinn in um, woodwork glue, which is highly flammable, and inflict matches at him until he caught fire. Devilish Barry imaginations. Ro- Barry Robert Quinn died in hospital of burns, and when the police came in to interview him, he rolled over and faced the wall and refused to lag on Tasmarcus. So in fact he didn't roll over? He rolled over but did not roll over, mm. if you get my drift. Yeah. It's only natural that people looking back at the death of Carl Williams uh, in 2010, which ended up being a reasonably complicated business, and at least two sets of people were blamed for that, uh, you know, sort of conspiracy theories. And one of those conspiracy theories is probably exactly right, mm. and the other one maybe someone was just got lucky that he got killed. Mm. But that will mean that a lot of people will construct similar conspiracy theories about this. Now, who, for the minute, let's let's uh, suspend disbelief. Who would benefit technically from his injury or death? Well, just lately, um, Mock Bell had sent out a letter, written probably by another prisoner, but with his approval, um, saying he was going to name names of people involved in corruption and. Uh, members of the judiciary, members of police, yep. possibly even politicians. Yep. That was sent around towns to certain um, barristers and I believe the director of public prosecutions herself. Um, he made demands. He wanted to be out within 14 days because of the predicament he found himself in in the lawyer X situation in that he has received a letter from the director of public prosecutions telling him that his case may have been tainted and that is why he's serving a 30-year prison term. Right. So, obviously, in retrospect, you know, it wouldn't look like a good idea because he's ended up stabbed. But was there any logic or common sense or good tactics in sending out such a letter to all those people? Or would this be interpreted by many of them as some sort of threat that would earn him enemies he didn't already have? Well, I think what would be the first thing you'd look at would be he's written it with another prisoner. 
and that would go through the prison system. Now, if you are making a claim to name names, obviously you're, you're, you're switched on to the fact that where is this going to lead? And that might be something within the prison system they wouldn't want. But it might be just as simple as that he has been involved in another small skirmish or dispute, which is this teenage boy that he's trying to protect, and that's singularly the reason that he was stabbed. Yeah, it just becomes down to a, what is vulgarly called a pissing competition between the two, you know, the young bull and the old bull in the paddock. Exactly. But what we do know about Tony Mockbell is that he likes to make his presence known in the prison. Maybe not so much as an enforcer, but as someone that can get things done, someone that's got power. He likes to talk. He uses his influence. And he's had influence on the outside, and he's been able to negotiate his way through the prison system for since 2008 when he arrived back from Greece. And uh, he's only had one incident in that time that I know of, and that's when he had a heart attack. And is it conceivable that he's had trouble reconciling his previous huge reach and influence because of the massive amount of wealth, albeit illegal wealth, illicit wealth, that he commanded and therefore the sheer number of people that he could bribe or pay or, you know, who would follow him. Is this a a reality check, a sign of his changing fortunes that, you know, he no longer really has that sort of pull because he no longer has access to that sort of money and the longer you're in prison, the less relevant it becomes? Is that true? He may have gone down in the pecking order somewhat since he was uh, imprisoned, but... All the same, he has had the connections on the outside that continue on. He has had the Hells Angels as a backer. I don't know if you recall, but um, there were Hells Angels at his mother's funeral. Right. A a sign of respect. Uh, Yes. He still has um, some goodwill with the likes of uh, Mick Gatto, of all people. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is how the, the wheels turn in crime. It's a fluid situation always. And his brothers, um, Hordy, Malad and Kabbalan, are still out here. Um, one is very sick. The other two seem to be okay. Um, but they have connections, and those connections are always changing. Do they still have the sort of money that um, commands respect, even if it's only a percentage of what they once had? You may not need $100 million, uh, That If you've got access to a few million, it would do. Mm. Do you do you believe they've still got access to a remnant of their former fortunes? It's a good question. I'd imagine that there is money, but they don't like to declare it because no. at the moment, uh, Mock Bell wants a seat uh, at the recently announced Royal Commission into the Lawyer X saga. Right. And he has had some trouble finding the cash to stump up for a solicitor and a barrister. Now, he has people working for him, but I think they're doing it for free. Okay. Their time at a Royal Commission, which will last the best part of a year, probably has to be paid for. Would be worth a lot of money. Yep. So he would want legal aid. And he hasn't got legal aid, and he hasn't stumped up for someone to be at the Royal Commission yet. Right. So we've got to remember he had $60 million probably seized. um, Yeah. When he returned. Um, and from, money does evaporate. Yeah, and the money evaporates and people take their share. And once you're in behind 
You know, there's, uh, all's the, fair and the rats get into the rice store. That's right. Hmm. So who knows how much he's got or hasn't got, and how much anyone's willing to give him that probably was his and maybe not now. That's true. This is really a graphic reminder of his changing status, you know, in every way, financially mostly. Yeah. But we've also got to remember that he's pretty much, it would be agreed, he's the most infamous prisoner in Victoria, if not Australia. Yeah, that's true. And the publicity surrounding him of late has, you know, no one can deny it's increased um, over the lawyer scandal and then this other issue that's emerged. And that amps up the... Uh the, the pressure and the profile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just warms things up for no particular reason other than the obvious one. If he's in, the, he's in the news. Yep, gets talked about. And of course, his profile was always the largest from the times that he was um, sailing the seas of the Pacific to get himself uh, away from Australia, uh, or was it the Atlantic? I can't recall. I think the Indian Ocean. The Indian Ocean. It would have been. Yeah, that's right. He set off from Fremantle. You've had uh, two guys. You've had two guys. I got them both wrong. Um, yes, headed uh, headed across the water to the Maldives, and then. Um, well, this is where you come into your own, Roland. Let's I think, I think tell this part of the story. I think you'll find that the good ship Edwina, yes. on which he was, his uh, henchman had placed him uh, with three Greek sailors who were expert sailors. None of uh, which could use Tony's toilet, by the way. Not allowed to use Tony's toilet because he was the. Now, maybe he's not such a top dog now. He might have to just whichever toilet there is at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Well, he'll be have to be helped at the moment, I'd imagine. Possibly so. Yeah. But I think they got to the Maldives, and I understand he was seasick every step of the way, mm. which would be not much fun. Um, it might have been when he started slimming regimen. He would have t- he would have lost a few um, kilos kilos on the way, but um, once he once he got to Greece. Uh, there's a few good restaurants over there, I believe. He clearly must have had plenty of money at that stage. This is, we're now we're now talking uh, late 2006, early 2007, that sort of Christmas period, aren't we? We are. When, when he when they did the the bolt from in the yacht from Western Australia, the yacht, of course, they trucked across, right across Australia from the eastern states after fitting it out extensively in. Sydney, I think it cost maybe 340000 plus a fit-out of 70000 plus bits and pieces. And then at the very end, at Fremantle, the Greek crew, who were probably then told the secret that they'd be taking out an owner hidden in the yacht, had to create a little Tony-sized hole mm. in the boat that he could hide in uh, sufficiently well that the customs people wouldn't find him. On the way out. What actually, we haven't actually mentioned this, what actually persuaded him one day in March 2006 mm-hmm. to skip bail? Yeah, one minute he's walking around the botanical gardens to health and fitness. Yes. Next minute he's vanished. Yes. What brought that on? Well, if you Who brought that on? He had a legal team. He did. Was and it more than one? There was two barristers at least. I think there was two barristers. Both female? No. No. And one of them will only refer to as Lawyer X. Yes. And Lawyer X, it is claimed by Mock Bell, uh, told him that he'd be better off uh, getting out of town instead of possibly facing a couple of murder charges that were on their way. Because... 
Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. Is lawyer X knew they were on their way? Yes, as many people knew. Um, but it always went around that a lawyer had told him that he'd be better off not being around. But they had the wrong lawyer. Yeah. A lot of people mentioned uh, another female. Yes, they uh, mentioned. Who's a prominent figure. Yes. Uh, but in fact, we now believe it was Lawyer X. Yes, a barrister. And do you believe uh, that that's the case? Well, Lawyer X was in that trial. Lawyer X would have known what was going on, as many people did with um, certain associates of, of Mock Bell and Carl Williams, of course, um, um, giving information to police and, 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 and what they call rolling or turning informer, Strange giving statements. Mm. Interesting, isn't it? But what we do know is that Tony Mockbell was pretty buoyant about that trial. If he went down for co- the cocaine, he was happy to do his nine years. Not happy, but he was going to do it. But he felt that the jury might find him not guilty but, and he yeah. was going to hang around for that. So something changed dramatically in the last week or so right. of that trial. Now, we really don't know what went through Lawyer X's head. But what we do know is that she was a police informer we do, at that time. In which case, why is she playing triple agent? Okay, she's a police informer because she since told us she really didn't like the sort of things that the Mockbell... You know, she empire. wanted to get the Mockbell monkey off her back. She did. Mm. So why then would she tip off the biggest monkey of all, Tony Mockbell, and say, you better get out of here or they're going to nail you? Would that not be more likely to be some other lawyer who actually did have his interests at heart? Well, all we know is what he says. And history is yet to be determined on exactly what happened. But what we do know is that he left it all of a sudden. Right. Well, can you take us, how did it get to that point? Where did Tony come from? How did he live his life? Once upon a time, there was a little boy called Antonius Mockbell who was born in the Middle East to Lebanese parents. I think he was born in Kuwait or something like that. Mm-hmm. But not actually born in Lebanon, but Lebanese parents. And um, part of that um, Middle Eastern diaspora of people who were displaced um, in post-World War Two. Yes. And they eventually come to Australia in 1974, I think, when he was just a youngster. He's mm-hmm. just a very young fellow. And he and his brothers and mum and dad, and they get out to the northern suburbs of Melbourne, perhaps not far from Coburg, from Pentridge Prison. I think he might have gone to... Brunswick? Around there. Yep. I think he might have gone to Moreland Secondary oh, School. I've memory of that. Right under the shadow of Pentridge, which is wonderful, really. Mm. And wasn't a great keen student, but always knew the value of a dollar. And Tony, being a, you know, uh, he was probably shaving at 14, <laughs> let's face it. 
he um, married young to the beautiful Carmel. Yes. And he had a, I think, a milk bar and in a quick, in rapid order, a pizza parlour out in the Burbs. Baronia. I think out that way. Yep. Distant, distant places. And amazingly, the pizza parlour must have done very well because he started to turn over quite a bit of money. Mm. And as time went on, he turned over so much money, you think this man must sell pizzas for a hundred dollars each, mm. not not fourteen ninety nine mm. or twelve ninety nine. And it may be that he was already dealing in illicit goods at that stage. Mm-hmm. That when you asked for a Tony special, you got something extra. It may be, but uh, regardless of that, there's no doubt he got involved in in drugs and in crime. In the eighties, as a very young man, and in fact, he's the first, I think, uh, charge against him was illegal possession of a gun back in the early eighties. Okay, so he um, he tooled up and was a bit of a rough nut, and liked a punt, and loved a punt, loved a punt, and uh, in the nineties, the first time that the wider world heard of him, he was known around the racetracks and obviously in the underworld, but not really known to the public. And the first time I heard about him was in 1998, the winter of 1998, at the football at Princess Park, where Carlton was playing someone else. And uh, Wide Awake Racing Identity said to me, oh, this tracksuit gang's very interesting, or worse that effect. Mm. And uh, I know that this identity is very sick of hearing this story. And he's asked me not to repeat it, but I'm sorry. I have to repeat it. And I said, Tracksuit King, what's that? And he said, oh, that Tony Mockbell bloke. He's, you know, they run around at the races. We're throwing tens of thousands of dollars at the bookies and, um, and so on and so on. He didn't actually spell out that it would be black money being yeah. laundered at the races, but obviously that would be the implication. Yes. Because that's what it was. And that's the first time I heard of A, the Tracksuit Gang, and B, Tony Mockbell. Mm. But it turns out that I know, and even then knew a, a jockey who was a colourful jockey, who tells me that Tony Mockbell was a great friend to jockeys. And he would gather all his jockey friends, certain of them who were, you know, more reckless young fellows, mm-hmm. and he would take them to nightclubs and strippatoriums mm. where young women took their clothes off for money. And mm. he would... He would uh, Shower these jockeys with cash and with cocaine and with the um, friendly services of the strippers. Mm. And that way he got his hooks into various jockeys because he liked to be able to manipulate or attempt to manipulate the outcome of races. And I have to say that not all jockeys went for this. I know of one New Zealand-born jockey who said, oh, this is too hot for me, this is... This is I don't want to do this. Yep. This, is, this is too dangerous. But others went along with it. Yep. And I know of cases where uh, Tony Mockbell organised, you know, what they call boat races, where he would organise um, for uh, a winner, a certain horse to win and certain other horses to be pulled up yep. to allow that horse to win so he could invest a very large amount on it and get a return. Uh, and that was one way to turn dirty, filthy black money from the drug trade into cash that he could use to buy shops, boutiques, Ferraris, you name it. And race horses. And that eventually leads him to a lady by the name of Danielle Maguire. Does it? Mm. And how did that happen, Anthony? I think he left 
Carmel and the family. Did he? And uh, it was bad manners. Began seeing. Uh, this is where you can tell he's not Italian because they tend not to leave. Mm. So Danielle was the daughter of a woman who dated a man named Rod Collins. Yes, notorious figure. And Rod Collins was a hitman. Mm. Now she's not the daughter of Rod Collins, of no. course. But uh, Danielle uh, would end up um, fleeing Australia. Well, not fleeing, really, because he was allowed to go, but leaving Australia to meet up with Tony in Greece. Very interesting chapter, that. Yeah, very interesting chapter. The the, the entire law enforcement uh, couldn't actually track down a 30-something-year-old woman and her 12-year-old daughter. That's right. A pregnant woman. Yes. They couldn't keep up with yeah, them? Yeah, they... Um, How's that? She, well, she was um, quite slippery and maybe had the help of others while she was heading to Greece. Um, she went by a circuitous route. She did. I think she went through Rome. That's the word. Rome. Um, through Rome. Yep, okay. and gave AFP officers the slip uh, around about that point. Um, but um, I happened to meet her one day. Uh, at not the, in Rome. Not in Rome. No, I've, I've never been sent to Rome on assignment. No, no. Um, I was um, just in South Yarra, right? Turak Road, South Yarra, where you just mentioned that uh, he bought hair salons. Did you have a visa? Oh, I didn't need a no, visa. No, no. no, I didn't even get a perm. Okay. Um, but um, I went to visit her after Tony had absconded from his 2006 cocaine trial. Right. And that's when he went to Bonnie Doon for about nine months. As we later found out. Yes. For many months. And, and she, she, she was knew. visiting him here, there. Is that where she fell pregnant? That's where she fell pregnant. It must have been lonely and cold up at Bonnie Doon. Yes. There's a lot of serenity. And it is amazing she wasn't followed there, but she wasn't, apparently. Is that right? Mm. Um, so she ended up leaving her hair salon, which was doing well, I believe, and taking her child, Brittany. That would be... A sort of a giveaway that she left her hair salon. Mm, I think I reported she, in the paper. It would indicate she had other means of support. Would I think it? so. To you, if you were, say, a federal policeman or a Victoria policeman or mm. investigator of any stripe, would you find that interesting? Yeah, well, I think that they attempted to follow her and they knew that she would be the way to find him. And but she, but she would she, have known she, that she herself. She took the circuitous route yes. via Rome. Yes, to find her friend in yeah. Athens. And the father of her unborn child. Unborn child. Or and uh, father. While they were there, I think um, you'd know better than most, they were doing normal things. They were. They were going down to the pool, which they is were. one of the places where the AFP tried to, and Vic Pohl tried to get him. Yes, it's um, a lovely story. But they kept on missing them. They did. And they eventually obviously found him in a restaurant, which is quite fitting. Was he wearing his wig? Oh, gee, you'd have to tell me. Was he wearing his wig? Oh, I think he might have been. Mm. Um, and um, because he he really had turned himself into Stephen Pappas. Pappas. Stephen Pappas. And Stephen Pappas, uh, according to the documents he travelled with, uh, had a full head of very shiny hair. Mm. Yeah, very good. Mm. This supplied, of course, this inspired one of the greatest cartoons I've ever seen in my life, done by our, our own Mark Knight. Oh, I have... Uh, where... Where, of course, when they hold up they, the, the cartoon is of Tony Mockbell mm. and he's holding his hands up mm. and the wig is standing up holding <laughs> its hands up saying, don't shoot. Well, or, it was a much better um, person to play, being Stephen Pappas, than it was Wes the Mute 
Wes the Mute. Now, yes. Wes the Mute, you should tell our listeners just who Wes, Wes the Mute was. Well, we have to go or, back a step. We do, to the trip across Australia. Yeah, across well, the Nullarbor. He, so he sends his mates up to buy the yacht, right? Yes. They get it all fixed up. They do. And they, go, they said, and the Greek sailors, who are pretty canny, they said, we're not sailing from Sydney around to Fremantle because you've got to go through some very dangerous waters. We will sail the bare minimum across the relatively warm and forgiving waters of the Indian Ocean. Yes. So you'd be trucking your yacht straight across, which is what they did. But then Tony and his friends had to get over there, did they not? Via a four-wheel drive, or maybe a convoy of them. Um, possibly two cars. Possibly two Rent, cars. Rented? Uh, four-wheel drives, I remember that. I don't know if well, they were rented a, a or Nissan, not. A Nissan Patrol? Yes, uh, that you, rings what, a bell. What colour? Gold. Gold. Yeah. They couldn't help themselves. Of course themselves. it was gold. They um, couldn't help themselves. They, couldn't they were travelling incognito, yes. but they took the gold one. Yes, a family getaway with their... And so where's, where's coming to this? Well, in case they got pulled over, yeah. and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, he would remain silent. In fact, couldn't even speak, and he was to be a man named Wes who was a mute. And he was in the back seat, was it, with a woman who had a seven-month-old child? That's right. And the idea was that Wes the mute... Mm-hmm. was the husband of the lady with the child. Yes. And he'd be in the back saying nothing. Yes. And perhaps didn't get out at truck stops because there was always that faint chance that mm. someone somewhere would look up and see good old Tony from back home in Brunswick yep. or somewhere, or Baronia. Yes. Or the races and go, hey, Tony, that wouldn't be good when you're trying to be Wes. And, of course, by that time he was, uh, I think he'd been found guilty of three kilo of cocaine importation and was supposed to be uh, living at either Port Phillip Prison or Barwon Prison, wherever they decided to send him. Yeah, so he was tried in absentia, wasn't he? He was. During his time up at Bonnie Doon, his seven months of serenity. Yes. Where he was, you know, managed to impregnate Danielle Maguire. Yes. During that time, I think Judge Bill Gillard might have, no. Was Justice Gillard, have, correct, yep. Justice Gillard yep. might have gone ahead with the cocaine trial. He was most and, annoyed. And said if he was here, we'd be putting him in the slammer. That's and right. He, and he owes us X years. Yes, and I think it was around about nine years he got. I, I'm sure it would be. And uh, he is currently serving that. Yeah. As well as many other. As all the other things. As well as the other crime. In Greece, all those many months later, and we're now talking mid-2007, the Australian police, Victoria Police and some federal police finally put the um, clamps on Tony Mockbell after getting information, key information from a Melbourne-based associate yes. of the gang. Yes. Uh, a very brave associate. We are, we only can call him 3030. 3030. Or 3030, whichever way you like. Yeah, good name. Good name. And it's... Uh, he became uh, an important figure in not only finding, uh, giving, sorry, yeah. mobile phone numbers and yeah. other information that helped them track him, but pretty much where he was. Took out all the information from a laptop computer. That's right. Gave it to the police. Uh, I think his motivation was that his own brother, perhaps, might have been affected by drugs. And yes, he, and I think he, he died. He had a personal reason to dislike drug runners. Yes. And he took the big step of... Um, of pointing the finger at the Mockbell gang, yep. which is a very dangerous thing and brave thing to do. And I think perhaps it's true that he he was a musician and he rang his mates in a band and said, you know that gig we've got on 
Saturday night? And they said, yes. He said, well, I won't be there and this phone will never work again. Oh. So don't ring me. And that was the end of that. That's dramatic. So um, I think on that note, we should finish. Good luck, Tony, with your recovery. We will see you soon, possibly at a Royal Commission. Hope so. Thanks, Anthony. And surely we will both be writing about uh, Tony Mockbell and his problems in the coming days. No doubt about that. You can read more about this and many other stories in the Herald Sun or heraldsun.com.au. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.